M.G. Vasanji was born in Kenya, raised in Tanzania, and came to Canada in 1978, trained as a physicist. He studied at MIT and the University of Pennsylvania and Toronto. Vasanji is the author of six novels and two collections of short stories. His work has appeared in various countries and several languages, and he has twice won the Giller Prize. His most recent novel, The Assassin's Song, was shortlisted for both the Giller and the Governor General's Award. He is a member of the Order of Canada and lives in Toronto. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. There's 18 extraordinary Canadians that have been uh, more than profiled, uh, biographied, if you will, in a series just published by Penguin, and the general editor is John Alston Saul. Did you choose to write about it? Yeah, uh, yeah, I chose. <laughs> so why did you choose Richler? Because... I think uh, his reputation for honesty and from what I heard and spoken with him, uh, he, he spoke straight, you know, said what he thought sometimes when it was unfashionable. And I guess because he also was in the periphery, you know, he's belonged to a minority culture for a long time, and even now I think. He had to negotiate his identity, you know, being what it means to be Canadian, what it means to be North American, what it means to be an American. Be a writer, uh, so he organized over and what it means to be Jewish. There was a good quote about the fact that he was grappling with a shallow Canadian history and a deep Yeah, and uh, like he's sort of lopsided uh, tradition on, on his uh, back. And towards the end of his life, he came to sort of accept what he was mm-hmm. and appreciate it. Uh, well, he appreciated being Canadian and you know, what he was. In terms of being Jewish, I, think, I guess that was what he was. He accepted it, although he had outgrown some of the confines of an orthodox uh, tradition. But he did appreciate the fact that you know his grandfather came from a certain uh, tradition, and uh, the Jewish people had a history that he was part of, and so on. Mm-hmm. I think that was his lifelong struggle, in my mind, uh, at least in, in most of or all of his major books. John uh, Ralston Saul in the introduction says that uh, you have, quote, an unparalleled skill for making one community's story everyone's story. And I suppose if there is a parallel, you might look at They're very strong parallels because he was defined by a city, as I was, uh, defined by a street, uh, at least symbolically one street, but it was, I guess, several streets, as I was. It was confined by a, what you would call a jealous community, you know, a community that at that time had not been written about, it was still very traditional mm-hmm. and clinging, and uh, the same thing with me. So I, I didn't realize that before I started writing. I just knew that there was this Jewish identity and Canadian identity, and then he, he sort of was conscious of that and of his place, which attracted uh, him to me. But as I read uh, him further, I realized that the parallels are... Well, obvious in a sense, but very strong between his situation and mine. And I suppose in some sense of many other groups, you know, wherever you come from a very tightly knit uh, group, then you have to grow out of it, and the, the, the growing pains you know, can be immense. That can basically occupy your life and your writing. One of the things that he did, of course, was to go to London and Paris. And uh, it's so interesting how many important writers have at a young age have gone to Paris. But that was in the 50s, and yeah. then he died, right? The 50s, 60s, then it was then that move was over. Right, he was probably the tail end of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think roughly by 60s. In fact, uh, in the mid-50s, he already sort of would start judging other people who were doing 
been what he had been doing a few years before. Mm-hmm. But he left when he was 19. Yes. You can excuse a lot of his posturing, if you want to call it that, of a 19-year-old, uh, basically boy. He was finding himself very courageous. Very, yeah. yeah. To just go off uh, and uh, start writing. And both his parents supported him, however... They supported him, yeah. They sent him 50 and $20 dollars yeah. uh, so each. They, they, um, His relationship to his parents also had a profound uh, effect on him. They divorced when he was They divorced 13. and lived with his mother and his father supported him. And he was very close. He became closer to his father. And I think his attitude to life, to culture, you know, what he thought of as honesty and authenticity came from, I think, his father. Mm. He was not very sophisticated. I'm not even sure he read uh, Mordecai's books. But his mother read all of his books. Uh, but his mother... There was a big problem between them. Maybe they were too similar, I don't know. One of the things that you say is that uh, the Jewish insecurity and self-consciousness about their humble origins was a recurrent theme in his fiction. Yeah. Do you relate to that? To some degree. See, if you brought up in the colonies, there's always this, the social uh, differences. But then there's, of course, the racial. For example, for example in St. Urban's Horseman, he's very conscious of the fact that some of the upper-class whites and the wasps and uh, their, their manners and uh, or in uh, George then and now his wife's family you know, who are wasps and how he relates to them and uh, there's a self-consciousness which I even saw in some of Philip Roth's books I, it, it seems to be because there is a humble origin and there is a you know there's always a self-doubt uh, whether you're, you're how much of it is posturing and uh, pretending you know you, you buy art but do you really a true love of it yeah Yeah, or you know, how true is it, or, or things like that. What, what you say here, just apropos of that, is if the French were our enemies, it was only the wasps who were truly hated and feared. It was, we felt, their country. That really struck me. That was one of the most surprising things I read by him. Because, you know, you know the difference, you know the history of anti-Semitism and so on. But this statement where there he is, I, I found it very strong mm-hmm. and very telling, you know. Yeah, you've got to wonder how much of that was was trying to be controversial and how much of it genuinely believed. I think he believed it, you know, because other, there's no need to say that, because he was basically, towards the end of his life, he had become a wasp in a sense, right? And mm-hmm. he, because this country had sort of he was partly extinguished that difference. He was part of the establishment, yeah. for sure. So I, I don't think he, uh, I don't think it's that. And in, in that, in those stories, that there are instances of racism, and you know, the uh, non-Jews, Jews not allowed in certain parts of you know, discrimination in the universities, in the hotels, yeah. in the on the beaches. So it was not. Uh, Yeah, in fact, you're, you're, yeah. you say here entrance to McGill required an average mark of 65 for graduating high schoolers, but the Jews had special consideration. They needed yeah. 75. Plus, they could not go to some of the beaches. Uh, that's a well-known, uh, also it's true in Toronto. Uh, the Granite Club until the 60s would not allow Jews. Uh, so I, I think it, it's not... Uh, I don't think it's just being controversial. It was all over, you know. Yeah, and it was genuinely felt. Just knowing your parents, and you know, they spoke with an accent, and uh, in those days, they spoke with an accent. It was humiliating. Nowadays, you know, who cares, especially in Toronto. You know. 
Yeah. Uh, and the manner mannerisms, you know, he speaks about his, you know, the father's clipping toenails at the dining table, and, you know, <laughs> that kind of uh, background. Obviously, you are conscious of it when you're sort of sipping a port with, with some, uh, you know, uh, lawyer in London, or you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, you cannot but be aware of that. Uh, mm. So do you think uh, that, in part, uh, the fact that he's able to express that pain is what uh, is at the heart of his work? I think that tells his honesty, because of course nowadays it's unfashionable to even uh, acknowledge that this discrimination and uh, class distinction existed. If you talk about it, I, you know, I find that you, know, this, you get a blank face, you know, as if it never existed. You know, we are not supposed to have been in the lower classes, uh, blacks and uh, whatever else. But uh, so he, there was an honesty in him, and uh, it's embarrassing for everybody. You know, nobody wants yeah. to acknowledge being at the low brunt, you know, end of the receiving end of racism and uh, class difference. Mm -hmm. But he, you know, he, he was very honest. That's why he was closer to his father, who again was very straightforward. His mother sort of denied it, or no? But his mother, she was a much more complex character. Uh, at least some people have suggested that she was uh, trying to please, that she was false in her interest. But I, I, I found that that's not true. It's too much of her interest in art and empathy with blacks in the United States, and that there was a lot that was genuine in her. Frustrated, so I've, I've given her a more sympathetic treatment than people uh, like to give her. For for other writers, she's just this uh, witch or the Jewish mother, and uh, that's it. But, yeah. Domineering and overproductive. Or? Uh, yeah, and uh, false, and you know, just making it a very negative character without giving her any humanity. Maybe people didn't like her, but you know, what was she like? Where did she come from? She wrote a biography of her, herself when she was seventy. She was a very impressive woman in that way. People didn't like her, most people, but uh, I tried to explain why. You know. Why? Someone reported in an interview that she said that if I had been a boy, I would have been a rabbi. Didn't she want Mordecai to be a rabbi? Yeah, but you see, that it's, it's a frustration of a woman who is circumscribed by her sex and her culture. She had a lot of interest. She would go to see plays and once she went to New York and she saw three British plays, so she wrote a report to Mordecai, and then she gave a commentary on them. And so, you know, there was a lot that she wanted to be. She started a women's uh, reading club, uh, ambitious, wanting to do more, but just she had been held back. She wanted to go to high school, uh, at least at the upper high school, but her father kept her back, forced her into a marriage, it didn't work. Frustrating and restricted. So for someone who had possibilities in uh, some other household, she was more free. She, she would have achieved things, yeah? Mm -hmm. Or not to university and so on. So I think it was that, uh, that, her, that was her frustration. So at some, uh, when Mordecai was 13, she had an affair with uh, this sophisticated German Jew, Austrian Jew. Again, this hankering for sophistication, you know, these Jews could sing opera and spoke three European languages, and, you know, very different from Mordecai's father cutting these toenails. You know. <laughs> yeah. So for Mordecai, he may not have wanted to be like his father or like his mother. Even when he was 40, she was there, you know, and at some point... 
So she loved him, but maybe too much? Too much. Yeah. I would have thought that towards the end he could at least have tried to understand where she came from. He tried a little bit when he went to Israel to understand his grandfather, accepted him, both his grandfathers. But there was no reconciliation with his mother? No. no. And, uh, Quite the contrary. It was tragic. So the correspondence between them in the last bits of you know, the final breaking off occurs in, in two or three letters. It's a tragic to read. For me, anyone who has a mother, I think any boy, any man who has a mother, which every all of us have, mm. it's wrenching, you know, because he was very harsh on her. I think he admits at one point when his father died that he was like his father in the sense that he didn't like confrontation. He would run from it. I think maybe he ran from his mother. And uh, that was it. And then I think he told her, I don't, I don't think he had told her before, that for you to have been sleeping with this guy. But I was right in the next room or in the same room. Oh, he heard it? Saw. Oh, he saw it. But he only says it when he's, what, 60-something. But he never, except for that very private letter, speaks about it. You see, he spoke, he wrote a lot about his father, was repeating it, basically. But the mother, he never paid tribute to her. You can only get the mother's contribution through some of the stories where the dominating mothers who, you know, put them into art school and, you know, go to the teacher and you know, tell you, oh, you came second in class, who came first, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But basically, the person was providing the push. Someone who actually maybe was responsible for the fact that he actually did go to college, even two years. Uh, but it's a complex story which you, you would have hoped that he would deal with. Maybe he wanted to at some point, but he didn't. Uh, it's sort of an incomplete chapter in his life. I'm speaking with M.G. Fasanji, a celebrated Canadian novelist who has written a brief biography of Mordecai Richler as part of the Extraordinary Canadians series that Penguin has just put out. And there's a line here, it looks like, yes, in a, in a letter to a friend, where he says, I fear the work is thinned by too long an absence from roots, which explains why he returned to Canada. Yeah. I wonder if you could talk, in light of your experience, you, you're you removed from your roots. Yeah, but you um, know, that's what he thought. There's a truth to that, because every writer agonizes over this when they're out of there, you know, away from the roots or whatever, you know, away from the culture in which uh, they grew up. Sometimes they have to leave. Yes, you have to leave, but the but question is... Uh, how long do you stay, yeah. And uh, so Mordecai said that. He was with a lot of people like him in London. Doris Lessing, you had V.S. Naipaul, mm-hmm. you had George Lamming, great Caribbean and uh, African, African writers. Yeah. And two of them went, to win a, went on to win the Nobel Prize, mm-hmm. Doris Lessing and V.S. Naipaul. Both of them conscious, especially V.S. Naipaul, conscious of the fact that you're away from... Mm-hmm. But of course, that becomes part of who you are. It becomes part of what you write. Yeah? The fact that you are in exile. Yeah. yeah. But Mordecai, having said that, he came here to the source of his inspiration. And what happened was in the next 30 years, he wrote only three novels. You see, that's the great irony. Yeah. He came here hoping that, I think, hoping that he would write many novels. But he found that he wrote three, and uh, of course one, I think, was, they were all, I think, they were all great novels. Yeah, some but, called uh, uh, St. Turbine's Horseman, uh, uh, the greatest Canadian novel. There's also this uh, hard to read, but you know, Solomon Gursky was here. Yeah? I think he was just, this is what Canada does, right? it stifles you. 
when he was younger, when he came back in the 60s, he stayed for a year or something. And he, he, one of his articles he wrote that, you know, in Canada, a celebrity can, can kill you. And Brian Moore also had said that. You know. Of course, you know, it brought him a living, brought him celebrity status, quality of life. But then perhaps you could argue that maybe he wrote too much of the smaller things and not his great novels. You're suggesting you, perhaps if he'd stayed in London, he may I don't know. St. Arbanes Horseman was already written in London. So after coming here, he wrote Joshua then and now Solomon Gussie and Barney's In London, I don't know what he would have written. I basically, Montreal was his milieu. So he had to come here, but uh, he got into, into writing s smaller pieces. Journalism. Yeah, when I speak to people, they say, oh, Montreal is a great guy, you know, we really like him. So I said, which novel? Do you read his novels? You know, the only writer is a journalist. So which I, I thought for a person who left at the age of 19, to write great novels. So I tried to rehabilitate him as a novelist. For me, he's not. His journalism thing came later. I, do, I don't think... I think it's people. wonderful, though. I do really think it vibrant it's vibrant and but funny it, and but truthful. It's, but it's time. You know? I, I looked at his uh, book uh, on Quebec, the language, yeah. and I told myself, who cares about this issue now? If I told my son, you know, both of them born here and read this, I said, oh, I don't care about this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Language crisis? Mm. Nobody gives a damn. Of course, at that time it mattered. It was on the best of this. Now it's remembered. So, in that sense, the truth, and some of it was great, but a lot of it gives you money, so you send it off. Yeah. Right? I yeah. got a request from India to write 750 words. If I want to respond to it, I might. I just make up something, yeah? But it's not really what I am. And if that's what I'm recognized for, then, you know, John Merkab is right. <laughs> Just returning to family and, and then closing down here, one of the things that you say here is that no better tribute could be paid by a man to his family. You say, for someone whose childhood home had been unhappy, bitter and humiliating, Richler had given himself a family that he valued perhaps above everything else, but there is a circularity here. His family gave him the emotional anchor that enabled him to write as fearlessly as he did. Yeah, I think he needed stability. And he had a good, solid marriage. He had a good marriage, and I think uh, it also... It entered his writing, too, you know, because uh, there is a wife similar, you know, parallel to, to his own wife, in three of his books. He uses that to investigate something else. For example, in Joshua, then and now there's the wife and the stable family, and then he investigates the Holocaust, what it means. So he, he, was, he uses his life all the time. And when, mm. you know, when he had a stable family, he also used that. Through the novels, again, I'm quoting you here, through the novels, he broadened the cultural scope of Canadian fiction. He brought to it an exuberance it had not seen with his vernacular, his wit, his indomitable though often tortured characters. Do you think he's the greatest Canadian novelist? I don't know. I mean, Brian Moore wrote some great novels. I think he wrote some great novels, and maybe too many of the journalistic pieces. <laughs> That's my assessment of him. And he was a great character in the sense that he was very caring, which makes it hard to explain how he treated women in his younger days. Womanizing. I have suggested, he's not too womanized, but sounds maybe too casual. Or, but I have suggested that some of it might just be, uh, he was young, he was in 1920, 21, you know, it might just be boasting or 
bravado. Yeah, because there's no real way of to check. And he contradicts himself too, and people forget that we all contradict ourselves. And he does, you know. He, he said he would marry this girl, and he had another girlfriend, then yet his next letter he wrote was saying, I might bring her home. And he did try that first girlfriend. I mean, I did, I, was, I really wondered about this, this almost invisible women. Uh, there was Helen or Helene, I'm not sure. Uh, and then there was his wife, Kathy, first wife, uh, just to find out about them. But his Helen has disappeared. He tried to bring her back in a, in, in a memoir. But I looked at it and it seemed very much like a, a kind of fictitious, trying to fictionalizing it because he changed her name to Pauline and then, uh, you know, that uh, manuscript suddenly became Joshua then and now, you know. So he, I, th I don't think he would handle that. Uh, maybe he was afraid of identifying her, I'm not sure. But there's a mystery there. As I was saying, the piano, there's nothing really. We're all the same, you know, capable of the same sins and the same you know, truths. I, I don't find anything objectionable. Unless you're Hitler, but, you know, leaving those path path pathological cases. Aside, I don't find anything horrible that anything is possible for anybody in a normal life. We talked about what he has done for Canadian fiction. Do you have any summarizing thoughts about why he's an extraordinary Canadian? He's an example of someone who grappled with his family and community identity and with his Canadian identity. So he dramatizes, I think. Very Canadian question: Who we are? Who is a Canadian? You know, who is a Jew? Who is an Indian? You know, how much of you are this or that? And uh, and he also made some very honest comments, which I think are more or less dismissed. His put down of nationalism. Quebec nationalism? No, the phenomenon where just because something is Canadian, you know, it's celebrated. You still see it in the media. If you look at the headlines, you know, some of them are just very corny. It's as if you're not sure of yourself as a country, but I, I think, you know, this country is sure of itself, at least most people are. It's the media that makes you feel that, you know, makes you feel that maybe you, you have to do more <laughs> to feel Canadian. Mm -hmm. You don't. I think uh, from my life, my children's lives, you know, people we meet in Toronto, nobody has any doubts about their identity and why mm -hmm. they're Canadian. For me, he's just someone who grappled with this, this, two, this sort of combined question and dealt with it in, in his fiction. I suppose some people become prominent and you highlight them because they're there. Then they may exemplify what it is that you want to be. Yeah. Well, what we are. I know it wants to be more English, <laughs> but... The way that he used yeah. his creativity to... Plus he also was a man of his time, so I think he uh, symbolizes that period, the second half of the 20th century, through his characters, as Jewish characters. I call them the new Canadians, the new Canadian sensibility compared to the old. So in that sense, that new sensibility continues with the people who came later in the 60s and 70s. An important documenting process or a historically important capturing of what life in Canada was like. Yeah, and he also, uh, over, the, over the 50 years that he wrote, he traced the history of a community and an area, right? The central urban area. Mm -hmm. Even when it was occupied by other people, but he picked those people and he traced their history. So in a sense, it's a literary portrayal of for part of Canada. So in that sense, it's also remarkable, you know, what he did. Well, thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts on thank you. <laughs> Mordecai Richler. I've been talking with M.G. Basanji, 
uh, who is the winner of two Giller Prizes and most recently the short biography of Mordecai Richler. Thanks again. Thank you.